welcome to the Art of Curation, Flipboard show about the art and science of selection. I'm your host, Mia Qualirello. I'm a curator, community manager, and Flipboard's head of creators. Each episode, I interview tastemakers from different fields who excel at the art of curation. How do they get started? How do they organize themselves? How do they curate for impact and more? Because if you think about it, curation is everywhere. Whether it's a sermon, your friend group, or the books that feed your thinking, curation is the DNA that makes or breaks experiences. Today I'm talking to Dan Darling, an author, pastor, and leader. He's the director of the Land Center for Cultural Engagement at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. Dan is a best-selling author of several books, including The Dignity Revolution, The Characters of Christmas, The Characters of Easter, and Away with Words. Dan exists at the intersection of the church and the culture, so it was fascinating for me to get his perspective on how curation applies to religion. I even got to ask him, what would Jesus curate? And his answer was thrilling. So Dan, it's so great to meet you. Well, it's great to meet you too, and uh, glad to be on your show. I'm so curious about how your faith came to you. It, it really goes back one generation. My dad grew up in Chicago, grew up in the city, and then they moved out to the suburbs in the 60s, probably 50s, more like it. He grew up in a broken home. His father was an alcoholic. His stepfather struggled with alcohol. Uh, he had to go to work at like f- the age of 14, you know, just to support his family. Uh, when he was like in his, I say, I think it was in 1971. So he would have been about 20, 21 years old. Uh, the Billy Graham crusade came through Chicago. He went with his mom, my grandmother, and um, they walked forward. And he became a Christian, and really, it changed the trajectory of of the family. And um, you know, they raised us. My parents raised us in the church. He married my mom. My mom is Jewish, and she became a Christian. So I've I've always grown up in in the church. I became a Christian at like the age of like four. I remember talking to my mom. She was driving, and I was in the back of our red. Um, Chevy Malibu. I just remember that and uh, having that conversation with her and I got baptized. And really, I know there's a lot of folks that sometimes will doubt child conversions. You know, was it really real? I think there's a good conversation to be had that, that sometimes parents just kind of nod their head and do what their parents or their peers think is is uh, acceptable. But for me, it was real, you know, and I mm-hmm. really, from that point on, really felt the love for for Jesus, the love for the Bible. Uh, I've always loved church. Uh, I'm, I'm 43 years old, and I I love going to church still every Sunday. Uh, I've always had a love for for the church, and early on in when I was in junior high and high school, felt a kind of a calling uh, to vocational ministry. Yeah, that's that's quite a thing to feel moved by the Spirit, and then to make a career out of it. So, um, what went behind that decision? It's interesting. I mean, um, in my church that I grew up in was, I would say, you know, I'm grateful for, for my church and my, uh, that I grew up in and have a great relationship with my parents. It was, it was a little bit more, um, I would say fundamentalist. So there were some things that I probably, uh, don't track with now that I did, you know, growing up for me, I felt really compelled to, to ministry. I loved studying the Bible. I loved any kind of chance I had to do public speaking, ministry, that kind of life. It's interesting. I've always had a 
a foot in the church and a foot in the culture. So at the at the same time, while I'm feeling it's called a ministry, I'm also, you know, paying attention to politics, you know, reading the newspaper every day back when we had newspapers. <laughs> <laughs> and so I've always had this two tracks and I've always been a writer. I've always been someone who enjoys crafting words and writing. So I've, I've had those tracks in my life and that's, that's sort of taken me in different directions. Sometimes it means working at uh, Christian organizations and communications, some, you know, writing and editing. Sometimes it means pastoring as a senior pastor full time. Sometimes it is meant, you know, writing books and articles and columns and all those things. So that that's sort of been my life for my career. That's one of the reasons why I was so excited to talk to you because our, our mutual friend Chris, you know, said you lived at this intersection mm-hmm. of the culture and the ministry. So since this is a podcast about curation, I've been thinking about like in terms of how curation fits in with what you do. I imagine it's about you take themes and events from the culture and adapt them to be relevant to your followers in the church. Did I get that right? Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, Christians they're living in the world like everybody else, right? Uh, Christians are trying to figure out what does it look like to be a Christian today with all the cross pressures that face most people. I think the last few years have been incredibly um, challenging, not just for Christians, for everybody with conversations about race and conversations about uh, the pandemic has really challenged a lot of a lot of things. Uh, there's a lot of deep division in the country, political division, um, racial division, division over COVID, all that. I think some of that's receding, but you know, there's always those things. And so what does it look like to be a Christian uh, in this world? And I, you know, the, the Christian gospel has a lot of resources for that, right? Uh, Jesus told his disciples in the upper room that, you know, at some level to follow the way of Jesus is going to conflict at some points with the prevailing culture. Uh, but be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. Uh, the New Testament scriptures are constantly framing the Christian story as one of being a sojourner and a stranger uh, in a temporal world that we're looking for a world to come. And so I think it fits really, you know, my my desire is really just to help Christians think through what does it look like to be faithful today to Christianity, faithful to Jesus, and also seek the flourishing of our neighbors. What does it look like to love our neighbor as ourselves, as an authentic Christian? And how do you do that? How do you take those ideas and craft them into a message and a sermon for your congregants? You know, one of the things that is really, I think, important for church life, especially when you're thinking about the sermon itself, is that um, you start with a text. The best preaching is anchored in specific texts of Scripture. And that kind of serves as a timeless guide. And so we, f- we don't first kind of surf the news and surf the culture and say, okay, what should I speak about today? We first start with the text. So most pastors will kind of plan out their preaching a year ahead of time or six months ahead of time and say, okay, we're going to you know, kind of survey their congregation and say, what are the unique needs? What are the texts of scripture that address that? Typically starting in a, in a, you know, anchoring in a book of the Bible for a while and just kind of working through it. And the beauty of being able to, of doing that is that inevitably, if you're working through a book of the Bible, it's going to hit on things that are contemporary and current. For instance, it's hard to preach through any extended part of the Bible without it touching on issues of human dignity and human worth. 
sanctity of life, worth of human human beings. What does that look like? Uh, it's hard to go through any text, of, extend text of the Bible without it talking about things like race and how uh, the gospel compels us to reconcile with people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. Um, it's hard to walk through a text that doesn't af- give us good guidance for how we should live with our families and live in relationship with our coworkers and live with uh, in relation to our neighbors. And so anchoring in the timelessness of the text helps us. Then I think the best pastors, the best preachers are able to say, here's this timeless principle like uh, humility or forgiveness or racial reconciliation or human dignity. And then look around and say, what are the areas that our people are uniquely challenged in this way? Uh, and what are the sort of applications we can make of this timeless text to real world applications? And that's why I think the curation comes in where you're reading the news, you're trying to find the pressure points where people are challenged, where people are struggling and really press in there. You gave me chills when you were talking about that, just to think about how something written so long ago could always feel so relevant. What mm-hmm. do you think is the magic of the Bible? Well, I mean, I'm going to give you the uh, the Sunday school answer, the answer that that as a Christian, I firmly believe, but I do firmly believe the Bible is timeless because as Christians believe it was authored by God. There's a, there's a passage in, in the pastoral epistles in um, I believe it's Second Timothy, which says that that the Bible is profitable. It's it's uh, inspired by God, and it is profitable for every every good thing. In other words, we believe that the scriptures were inspired by the Spirit. That God used uh, different authors at different times, different genres, different giftings but it was inspired by the spirit of God. Uh, There's a verse in Peter that says that the the writers of scripture were carried along by the Holy spirit. In other words, we believe that the Bible is actually God speaking to us, that it's, it's different than a normal book. And that's what I think speaks to its relevance and whether or not you're a Christian, you know, I, I'm a, a strong believer in the inerrancy of scripture, that it's inerrant, that it's accurate, that it's timeless, that it's inspired by God. But whether or not you, you believe that, it's hard to deny that it is very relevant to this age. If you just bring up almost any issue, the Bible speaks to that in a, in a very profound way. Would you mind curating the Bible for beginners? Um, obviously, you can't be completely comprehensive, but for someone who's listening to this who may not be religious at all, where should they start? The Gospel of John is a great place to really just read through with an open mind and say, who is this Jesus? Like, what is he claiming to be? Who did he claim to be? Um, What does the Bible claim that he is? I would like to say, you know, if for those who've never really heard the message of Christianity, there's a lot of conceptions of what Christianity is. There's a lot of misconceptions. Um, Sometimes Christians don't articulate the message of Christianity in a way that it actually was intended to be articulated. But I would say the central message of Christianity is this, is that the world was once good, that there's a God, a creator God who created the world with beauty and wonder and mystery, that he created humans as a special creation above the rest of 
creation and that every human being is made in the image of God and has dignity and worth. But then, then something happened to this world. And, and I, I don't think anybody would deny that the world is not as it should be, right? That there's brokenness and there's there's pain and hardship and and evil and corruption. The world is not as it should be. And the Bible says that that's because the human race, which was designed to, to live in communion with God and live in flourishing with each other, chose to, um, to rebel against God and follow the way of the serpent, follow the way of Satan. And because of that, what, what the Bible calls sin has sort of marbled itself all throughout the world. This is why the planet is... Uh, trouble. This is why people's hum- people are troubled. This is why humans have dark demons inside and and things that they can't seem to fight. This is why humans turn in on one another in violence and and exploitation and all those things. So that's that's the story the Bible tells. But then it also tells another story that that God has not given up on His creation, given up on humanity, but He has a He had a plan to rescue it. And then all through the Old Testament, you see that God is calling out a people, out of which would come a rescuer. And the New Testament completes that and says that this this person to come rescue us, that we need to come rescue us, that comes from outside of ourselves. Someone who's supernatural, who's not tainted by sin. It's this Jesus, this vulnerable, fragile baby born to two, to a peasant couple in a backwater town in the Roman Empire is both God, but fully God, but also fully human, which is hard for us to wrap our minds around. And that Jesus lived a sinless life. He was unjustly crucified and that his death and resurrection defeats sin and death in the grave. And so all the things that are bad in the world, Jesus defeated in his, his, his death and resurrection. And that one day he's coming, returning again to make all things new, that he's coming to fix the world, to make it as it should be. Uh, I believe it so strongly, not just because I was raised this way, but because I think it fully answers all the questions we have. What do you think Jesus would curate? I love the word curate, actually. Jesus, if you think about him as a curator, I think of the people he put as his disciples. That if you and I were assembling a team of 12 people who are going to turn the world upside down, we would not have curated the group of people that he did. Uh, here he pursues these crude, uneducated fishermen on the shores of the Sea of Galilee to be his change agents. He recruits a, a Jewish tax collector who had sold out his people, who was despised by the Jewish people because he not only was collecting the Roman taxes, but he also was skimming off the top. This was Matthew. He becomes one of his followers. Then he's got on the other hand, Simon the Zealot, who probably detested Matthew, wanted to overthrow the Roman government. And you look at the kind of people he curated who would end up first abandoning him when he was crucified. And then when he wrote, when he, after the resurrection became people who were so empowered by the spirit of God after, after Jesus rose again, that they, they essentially turned the world upside down. And then you look at the church. I mean, one of the, one of the things about the Christian church, the Christian church is a um, diverse global movement that's so interesting. So you have the Western church, you know, evangelicals, and, but then you have the church in the global South. And so I, I, when you think of Jesus as a curator, Jesus is really building his church and he's curating people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. The end goal of, of 
Jesus and building his churches to build this diverse global movement. And so when I think of that kind of curation, that's what I think of what, of Jesus as a curator. I love that answer. That's not what I was expecting. What kinds of qualities do you think Jesus was looking for in his disciples? And what can we infer, like how we should behave ourselves from those qualities? Jesus is looking for people willing to follow him and obey him. And the sort of Jesus economy, the the qualifications to, to be a follower of Jesus are so upside down from what we might consider our standard. You know, Jesus said that the last shall be first in the kingdom of God. Uh, Paul, who was Saul, who was actually a persecutor of Christians, and he was converted dramatically and became one of the greatest evangelists in history and wrote half the New Testament. He would later say, it's not my qualifications. You know, he was, he was, he was a educated um, teacher of the Old Testament. He was prestigious in society. He said, none of that is what qualifies me to be a follower of Jesus. He said, uh, not many wise, not many noble are called. The church is mostly built. I mean, we have high profile Christians. We have people who write books and speak on big platforms. We have mega churches. We have Christians who are famous. We have Billy Grahams. We have you know, Bono. We have people like that. For the most part, the church is built with mostly ordinary people, ordinary Christians who believe what Jesus said. Uh, the church is really built around the world through simple people. I mean, you look at his disciples, right? They are not the people that if you hired a recruiting firm, if you hired a headhunter to say, choose 12 people to change the world, they would not have picked Peter. They would not have picked Simon the Zealot. They would have not picked these folks. And so that's what I think is really interesting about the upside down nature of the of what Jesus is doing. What do you think are some of the most common misperceptions secular people have about religious people and vice versa? There's a couple of misperceptions. And sometimes misperception is rooted in some reality, right? So we don't want to be so super defensive. But I think one of the common misconceptions is that Christians, particularly evangelical Christians, it's just my tribe, that all we can all we care about is politics and power and being in charge. And there are certain elements, there are certain temptations throughout the ages of, of the church to, to seek power. So we can't deny that sometimes Christians have tried to do that. But that's not really the heart of New Testament Christianity. Uh, the heart of it is a faithful service to God, faithful service to our neighbors. Actually, you look where Christianity typically takes root, it's in the most impoverished parts of the world. You know, what, what I find interesting is even in ways that Christianity is criticized by the culture or by secularists, some criticism that's fair, some unfair, even the ethic by which we're criticized borrows from Christianity. So if you think about some of the loudest critiques of Christianity is that we don't do enough for the poor. And the truth is, sometimes there's places where Christians, even though Christians are usually at the front lines of helping the poor, sometimes there's places where, where we need to do more and we're not doing enough. But even this concept of helping the poor really is rooted in Christianity. If you think about the first century of the church, this tiny little movement in the first century, uh, that Greco-Roman culture, uh, caring for the poor was not just an accepted social ethic. Uh, th these were people that were almost considered like like to deserve this or that this was just kind of their station in life. And so when Christians actually 
would help the poor. It was it was countercultural. It was radical. It was it was strange when uh, disease kind of plagued the Roman Empire and everybody fled. Christians stayed in the city and were willing to expose themselves to sickness and death in order to save people who were vulnerable. Um, and everywhere you look throughout history, uh, Tom Holland is a great um, historian. Rodney Stark, others have said. Christians have been at the forefront of spearheading all these kind of movements from its from hospitals to uh, justice movements around the world. It's been Christians. And, and I think sometimes people want to tell Christians that um, we want you to be involved in social action. We want you to, to, to do works of, and acts of justice, but leave your core beliefs behind. And I think that's backward. I actually think it is our core beliefs that propel us to do these things. It's it's because we're we're Christians. And anytime Christians um, behave badly, and there's examples throughout history, it's not because we because we dive we dove further into what to our theology what we believe. It's because we've gotten away from it. And and I think uh, that's maybe a, a misconception that people have. I think people also see those who are deep in their faith that they view the world through a kind of filter bubble. What's your thought on how religion functions as a filter bubble and what you personally might do to burst that bubble? Well, I think Christians today need to really understand the world that we we are uh, living in um, and the frame that people have. I think um, secularism and other forces have kind of stripped away a sense of the transcendent that used to exist in society, at least in the West, right? So when Billy Graham is uh, at the height of his ministry, you know, people people in the West were not necessarily true believers, but they had a framework for what Christianity said and, and what it was. And so you can sort of connect the dots. You can tell them this is what true Christianity is. You can talk to them about the life, death, and re- resurrection of Jesus Christ, and the light bulb would come on. Well, today we're, we're operating in a much different environment as Christians that there's a lot of people growing up who don't have any idea of what Christianity is. Um, also, Christianity used to be seen as kind of weird and strange, maybe different. Today, Christianity is sometimes seen as even dangerous. And so I think Christians have to be aware of that and understand. And one of the ways I think we um, we engage the world is to just step back and say and tell the whole story of Christianity from creation to to the end, uh, the whole story that Christianity tells about the world. You, you, we talk to people and say, "You have a way of interpreting the world around you. You have a way of of explaining and answering questions. You have a uh, a worldview, if you will." Let me, let me just tell you what Christianity says about the world. You, you may not believe it, but this is what Christianity says about the world. And I think there are real, as, as um, Charles Taylor will, would say, there are real thin places where people really do wonder and have questions. And I, uh, w- one of the things I've really enjoyed and I've learned from is, is um, Tim Keller, you know, pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in, in New York City. Um, and, you know, his approach is to um, ask questions of people, to to probe people where they are. And, you know, I, I think everybody 
everybody has some kind of sense that uh, there's something transcendent in the world or that there's, you know, there, there's some kind of core belief system, right? Uh, I actually don't believe that people are moral relativists, this idea of your truth and my truth. I don't think we really believe that because I think if you press hard enough on everybody, there's a set of beliefs of right and wrong, right? Um, and so I, I think we have to engage the world that way, but also engage the world with joy and not not be alarmed by rising secularism, not be alarmed by some mm. of the opposition we might face, but say, this is the world that God has called us to. And we were made for this moment. We we're equipped for this moment and we can engage it with joy. I think the more we show and demonstrate that Christianity is good for the world, the more we love our neighbors by doing acts of compassion and kindness, the more we point a very tired and and weary world to the good news that Jesus has defeated sin and death in the grave and, and all that's broken in the world, Jesus is going to make right again. I think that's a refreshing balm to 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 weary souls. How do you track your ideas for sermons and writing? You know, it's interesting. I mean, as a creative person, I don't know about you, but I just, I've always been someone that has a, a million ideas. And uh, it's funny, every time I write another book, I'm like, okay, this is my last book. Because, you know, writing a book's hard. It's a lot of work. And I'm like, okay, I'm finished. And then it's like, no, I'm not, because I have other ideas or other things. Or I, I, I just... Uh, I don't feel like I ever run out of ideas. Uh, I think there's so much churning in the world uh, that that is so uh, interesting and sometimes hard and sometimes difficult. I try to carry a journal with me. I'm not a big journaler. Um, like every day, sit down and journal my thoughts like other people do. What I do, though, is I keep it with me because I get ideas at odd times, right? Sometimes I'm sitting here listening I'm in church listening to someone preach a sermon and I get a bunch of ideas. So I try to write them down or I'm listening to a podcast or I'm watching a movie or I'm in the shower or whatever, and I just get these ideas of, of things. And I actually think in, it's weird, but I think in outline terms and I, uh, that, okay, this would be a good article. Here's three points I can make, or here's a concept I haven't heard of, or here's a, here's a thought I might, might consider, um, if that, if, if that makes sense. It completely makes sense. And you talked about um, reading, being a sort of news person. What What mm -hmm. is your media diet? I try to read a broad cross-section of, of things. I think one of the things that we have to really discipline ourselves to do in this age is to not get into sort of echo chambers, right? Of Because um, the, the news media is so deregulated now. And I think there's some good to that. I think it's allowed certain voices to rise up that might not have had opportunities. Um, but it also has some pitfalls where, you know, anybody with an idea can publish anywhere at any time. And so I think we have to be just smart about not being in a echo chamber where we're only reading people that disagree with us. So I like to read a, a variety of things. You know, I'm fairly conservative politically and theologically. So obviously I read people in my own tribe. So I'm always reading like, you know, things like the National Review or gospel coalition for more theological stuff or other people my friends are writing. But I also like to read a lot of other things. Uh, like I love reading The Atlantic. I think The Atlantic, I don't always agree with the essays in there and some of them I strongly disagree with, but I think they have a really broad cross-section of people writing really interesting 
things. You know, people like Caitlin Flanagan, who's just an amazing writer, Elizabeth Brunig, or Connor Friesendorf. Um, now they've hired a few others like um, David French is writing for them. I read The Dispatch, which is which is right leaning, but very thoughtful. Uh, I liked reading the New York Times. I don't always agree with the New York Times, but uh, <laughs> I think they've added lately kind of a diverse set of voices. Uh, you know, Ross Douthat and people like that. But um, Tish Harrison Warren is writing for them now, which is really cool. Um, John McWhorter, and then you know, journals and stuff like uh, there's just different thoughtful journals like Pluff Quarterly is is really interesting. Um, I, I just I have a try to have a diverse diet. Also, you know, try to watch some things. You know, I don't watch a lot of cable TV, but I will watch clips, you know, if people post them on Twitter or things like that. I, I think one of the most interesting things to me is to read conversations among groups that are having sort of internal disagreements. So I think it's well documented, obviously, that conservatives had have had this sort of ongoing internal disagreement in the age of Trump you know, sort of back and forth, what is right. conservatism? And so to read folks like David French and others who are kind of challenging the right, even though he's conservative, he's challenging on some of our assumptions and all that. But I also think one of the other most interesting thing to me is to read um, people on the left, the kind of conversation going on, on the left between us, what I would say kind of old school liberals like Andrew Sullivan and Barry Weiss and, um, uh, you know, Matt Iglesias and those people, the conversations they're having with the, sort of this far young left. And then, you know, I also like to read, I really, really love reading history, American history. So I'm, I've all, I'm always reading a, a, a biography, uh, whether I'm listening to it on audible or I'm reading it. And then I like to read, you know, books on theology. Uh, I like to read, you know, books on Christian theology. So, you know, I, I actually do read some fiction, but I'm, I try to discipline myself to read a little bit more of that, but I really love American history. Uh, I love biography, and then I love just reading uh, theology when I'm, you know, reading books and stuff. What's hard about what you do? I think one of the hard things right now, and this is not just something that pastors and sort of Christian leaders are facing. I think everybody's facing this. One of the hard things right now is we live in such a tribal age, where people are sorting themselves into narrower and narrower tribes based not on shared interests, but shared hatreds. So I think one of the hardest things to do, <clears throat> but I think something that we absolutely have to do is the determination to keep, keep our friends together. There's so many ways that friendships and relationships can be splintered today, whether it's along political lines or cultural lines. I mean, just think of COVID for instance, right? There's what I call the COVID scale where people are all over the map whether you're on the far end where you are very sort of super COVID cautious or you're on the other end where you think it's all a hoax. But how do you keep your friends when people are all over the map uh, on something like that or something like race or something like politics that, you know, you may even agree with someone, but they think you should be more vocal here or they should be less vocal here. The ability to speak today in a way that doesn't alienate. The ability yeah. to speak in a way that says, you know, I don't land where you land on this issue, but man, I, I respect what you're saying. I see what you're saying. Let's continue our friendship. I think that's the biggest challenge today for, not just for Christian leaders. I mean, it is a big challenge, but it's a challenge for everybody, right? I, I think the fishers are so 
everywhere. And if we're not careful, we'll allow ourselves to be splintered that way. What didn't I ask you that I should have? This is really fascinating. I love the idea of curation. Um, You know, I think actually pastors are at an interesting place because I actually wrote an article about this for Christianity Today like several years ago, but pastors are curators and, and leaders are, you know, so I'm someone who's reading all the time and, and following stuff, but not everyone who comes to our church is that engaged because they're working jobs and they're picking their kids up from school and they're not sort of paid to, to do the things. So in some ways, we're one of the roles we have is to, to bring to our people all the best that's out there and curate it and say, here's a good book or here's a good article. Here's who you should be following. Here's who you should be reading. So I always like to end each of these interviews with like a speed round where the Mm -hmm. person, we do like live curation on the spot where you tell me like, what are the books, movies, podcast shows you think everyone should read, watch, listen. You mentioned biographies and American history. I'd love to start there with what are the essential books for you that you think everyone should read in, in those genres? Well, if I could have categories, that'd be helpful because, you know, yeah. choosing your favorite book is like- I know, it's hard. <laughs> impossible if you're a lover of books like me. Speaking of curation, I want to just say one more thing. Yeah. Um, I I love I love books so much. And one of the ways I curate too is like every time I'm traveling somewhere, I try to go to a used bookstore mm-hmm. and just kind of browse the shelves and inevitably find a gem or two that you could take home with you. And I think- one of my dreams is one day when I'm like old and retired is to like run a used bookstore and curate all kinds of interesting literature and, and books. So yeah, let's talk about books. If I can have categories, I think in terms of must reads, when it comes to like Christianity, I would say Tim Keller's book, A Reason for God, really anything by Keller, but I think that book is so important and so formative. I love the work of uh, like John Stott but Keller's book, The Reason for God, which comes to Christian theology, comes to by, uh, history. Man, I love anything by um, Ron Chernow, John Meacham, uh, Doris Curtin's Goodwin, uh, David McCullough. Um, I, I'm trying to think. My favorite American biography is always the last one I read. <laughs> but <laughs> I love Chernow's biography of Ulysses S. Grant. I thought it was really great and kind of changed the way I think about Grant in terms of his impact. I think he was more of an American hero than than he gets credit for. I love Meacham's biography of George H.W. Bush uh, and, and Meacham's biography of John Lewis that just came out. The Congressman John Lewis was just great. Anything by, uh, I, I love Doris Kearns Goodwin's, you know, her work. She just did one on leadership, I think last year, that kind of profiled four or five presidents and kind of leadership lessons. It was really excellent. What about uh, podcasts or TV? Do you watch TV? Yeah, I do. I watch TV. So yeah, I mean, like my wife and I love, we're like old souls. We love watching NCIS <laughs> or um, Blue Bloods. And one show we loved was that, I think it was PBS, uh, All Creatures Great and Small. It's about this like veterinarian in Scotland, I think it is. <laughs> it's so great. Um, we love the show Turn which was on a few years ago at a and It's like about the American Revolution. I love documentaries too. I'll, I watch all the 9-11 documentaries, Hulu one and the Apple Plus mm. one. 
I uh, don't get to, I like any, you know, anything that Ken Burns is doing. Yeah. And then podcasts, you know, sometimes I like the sort of the narrative storytelling ones. Mm-hmm. So I loved like that crime town one that was interesting about Rhode Island. Uh, came out a few years ago. It's like a narrative storytelling. Um, I think uh, the rise and fall of Mars Hill at Christian today was interesting. Um, and then I like interview podcasts. So I, I'll listen to people doing really good interview stuff, interview work, people who can ask really good questions. There's one called Life and Books and Everything, which is a like three guys that are pastors and theologians, Kevin DeYoung, Colin Hansen, Justin Taylor. I think Willie Geist has this Sunday conversation interview thing that he does. That's really good. David Axelrod, who I don't agree with almost on anything in terms of politics, is a really good interviewer. And I, I actually find it interesting when you get people from the opposite sides of the aisle to interview each other. I find that really pretty fascinating. And then I listen to some political stuff, you know, like Jonah Goldberg. I love listening to comedy mm. and to comedians writing about their craft. I actually think comedy is the hardest genre to write. Yep. Um, like someone like Dave Barry, to be able to be that funny for that long is so hard. <laughs> Mm -hmm. to do. I'll, I'll listen to sometimes Conan O'Brien. He has a podcast and he'll interview folks. Sometimes it's crass humor. That's I'm like, uh, okay. But a lot of times just them talking about the craft of comedy is just fascinating to me. I meant to say this. I like reading really good writing. Mm -hmm. People who are really good wordsmiths. So I consider um, that I like, I read everything Peggy Noonan writes. She's an amazing wordsmith. She's always met the moment in American history. I like Phil Philip Yancey, the Christian writer. He's one of the greatest wordsmiths. The way he could turn a phrase and and talk about complex theological issues and cultural issues is so is so amazing. So I just like to read writing that just leaps off the page where you're just you can't help but read it. If you want to connect with Dan, you can find him on Twitter at, at Dan Darling, D-A-N-D-A-R-L-I-N-G. Thank you to Rosanna Caban for editing. If you want to find out more about Flipboard, where enthusiasts are curating stories they recommend across thousands of interests, download the app or head over to our website at flipboard.com. Anyone can be a curator on Flipboard. Simply create an account and start flipping to share your ideas with the world. <laughs>